you take out your Bibles, we're in the book of James again this morning, and we're going to break into chapter 2 together. Uh, we'll pick up the last verse in chapter 1 and move into chapter 2. Heard from many of you that you've been enjoying uh, the wisdom or you've been encouraged and even convicted by the wisdom uh, that we read about in the book of James. Wisdom to bring us through times of testing, wisdom uh, to know how to listen, how to speak, how to, how to live in, in practical, sort of applied ways. This morning, our attention turns to kind of the realm of, of appearances. And it made me think about what seems like a, a silly question, maybe, but it's a, it's a topic that we have a surprising number of strong opinions about. And that's this idea, does, does God have a dress code for us? Is God interested in our outward appearances? Not too long after I arrived here at JCC, I received a letter in the mail one day from someone and it was a photocopied article about appropriate attire for pastors to wear on Sunday morning. And I guess I looked like I needed some help. I don't, I don't know. Most of us aren't, aren't that upfront about what we think uh, in terms of outward appearances. But nevertheless, they play a significant role. Right? Appearances play a role in who we respect. Appearances play a role in who we choose to believe. And appearances certainly play a role in who we choose to make welcome in our presence. I can remember back as a kid in Sunday school, one of my friends frequently wearing camo pants and Guns N' Roses t-shirts to Sunday school. And that raised the eyebrows of a few people in, in our local church. On the other hand, I can remember occasions visiting a church where the elder board was maybe not required, but strongly encouraged to wear matching colored blazers every single Sunday. And they all sat, you know, in this neatly organized way, and, and that rolled the eyes of many in the younger generation in that church. We all have these differences in terms of what we feel comfortable and because appearances play such an outsized role on our, our perceptions and evaluations, they can guide us into some deceptive places. Right? When, we, when we judge by appearances, we end up missing some really significant, some really important things that God has, has chosen to hide just beneath our, our sort of superficial layers and biases. This morning, as we take on this next section in the book of James, I want to maybe replace that, that question about does God have a dress code with a slightly more serious one. And James asks us this, what do practitioners of pure religion, authentic religion, what do they look like? And the answer that he supplies probably doesn't fit neatly into any single category we might construct. So would you turn to James 1, 
starting in verse 27. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. Lord, we desire, we've, we've come this morning to worship. And Lord, we, we ask for you to make up for our deficit, for our lack of understanding and obedience in, in bringing pure worship, attractive worship, beautiful worship, true worship that pleases you, Father. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the meditations of each heart be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your strong name we pray. Amen. Reminder, if you brought your notebooks with you, we're continuing to, to work through this discipline of copying out the scripture by hand. If you don't have the, the notebook, maybe you want to copy on some scrap paper you have, just, again, to notice and pay attention to the text. We do have maybe a slightly larger number of verses this morning, so if, if we are moving faster in a particular section, feel free to, to pause and, and come back and copy those out, uh, maybe after the service if needed. Last week in verse 26, uh, James concluded with this warning about how our speech needs to be bridled or reined in, and that when we, when we use thoughtless or careless speech, we can wound others and, and it can make our religiosity, our spirituality, worthless. It can empty it of its worth and credibility. Now, I think the, uh, the link between 26 and 27 here as we begin is that James now wants to point not to worthless, but worthy religion, pure religion, true religion, deep and beautiful and mature faith. What does that look like? Copy with me verse 27. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If you notice the adjectives in this verse, many of them are connected with the kind of offering, the kind of gift we're supposed to present God in worship. And you'll know if you've read the books of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or lots of the Old Testament, there's an emphasis on what kind of gift was worthy to bring to God. Right? The priests were instructing the people to bring pure gifts, undefiled gifts, spotless gifts to God in worship. And here James is saying in many respects the same still holds true for us today in this context, in this form of worship. Just as he said earlier in chapter 1, God is the giver of every good and perfect, pure, spotless, you know, complete gift. He gives those kind of gifts to us. So when we come and worship, we should be giving pure, 
spotless, whole, and holy offerings back to him. And in order to do that here in verse 27, James says our gifts or our offerings need to sort of be, be evaluated in two, two dimensions. There's an outward dimension to the gifts we give, and there's an inward dimension to the gifts we give in worship. Firstly, here in verse 27, he says, he, he speaks to the outward dimension of our worship, right? Your worship to be pure and faultless is to look after the most vulnerable in your community. Right? Look after orphans and widows in their distress. But then immediately following that, that outward dimension, he also tells us we're to pay attention to what's happening in, in, in the interior of, of who we are. He says, in your worship, you must also look out for moral compromise and, and for pollution, right, from, from being polluted by the world and its desires. Craig Blomberg and Miriam Kamal comment on this verse, said that true religion is a balance of both social justice and personal piety. You can't pick one and leave out the other. And many of us, many of our congregations even, like to specialize in one and maybe not pay as much attention to the other. James says that both need to clothe us. Both need to be representative of our worship. We need to put on both neighbor love and personal holiness in our worship. And for much of the past two Sundays, the, the, the text we've covered back in chapter 1, James has spent a lot of time looking at those kind of internal pollutants. The things that internally get in the way of our worship. He's spoken to us about the evil desires within us that, that carry us away from the path of obedience. He's spoken to us about the anger within us. And how that anger causes us to, to speak in ways that are unwise. How that also drags us into all kinds of other moral filth, James says. And in all of these areas, James urges us to, to get rid of those things. To uproot them. To, to pray for God's help. To be cleansed of those interior desires that would lead us astray. But today here at the, chat, at the start of chapter 2, I think James is now shifting his focus to, to help us think more about those external practices, those community dynamics that can also kind of infiltrate our worship and witness. And they can pollute the kind of gift we're intending to bring to God. And I think it boils down to this. At the start of chapter 2, James wants to ask us about who we welcome into worship with us. Who do we welcome to worship with us? Copy with me James 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, 
and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in also. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Give you a second to, to copy a little bit more of that passage down. James is asking us, who do we welcome in our worship? And he, he names here one of the, the dirty sins, the polluting sins that we probably don't talk as much about. And that's the sin of favoritism. It appears there at the end of verse 1. The Greek phrase which James uses in the text is, is probably a, a, a Semitic phrase that, that's sort of brought into the Greek language. And it means literally to choose how we receive one, someone based on their, their face, based on appearance. Welcoming according to face is, is sort of the phrase there. And so favoritism is essentially that. It's choosing how much welcome we extend to someone based on their appearance. If you look this way, you're, you're treated in, in one way. If you look another way, we maybe withhold some of our welcome. And so we're, we're left to ask, well, what kinds of faces are we most eager to welcome? Who do we want to worship with? Let me invite you to, to circle that word favoritism, if you want, in your journal. Put an asterisk there. As a reminder that maybe you want to come back and think about this later in the week. And maybe journal about these questions. Who do I easily welcome? into my life? Who do I easily welcome? And then, in turn, who do I find it harder to demonstrate favor toward? Who do I find it harder to welcome? And as you think about those, then maybe the third question is, well, what's behind that? What's driving welcome over here and, and discomfort or unwillingness to welcome and invite in over here. James is clear that that word favoritism at the end of verse 1 is incompatible with the Christian faith. He says whatever form it takes, whether it's classism as described here, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's us versus themism, whatever flavor favoritism might express itself in. James says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not do this. And so James, to help us think about what that might look like on a Sunday morning, he gives us a little thought experiment in verses 2 and 3. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting. And here James paints the picture of, of a really distinguished individual. A man with, with a gold finger, James says. A, a gold ring, 
literally with, with radiant or shining clothes. The guy's face, the guy's attire just sort of says, I've got it put together. Right? I'm, I'm one of the beautiful people. Right? I'm someone you probably want to get to know. That's individual number one. And then James says, the very next person behind him, in through the door comes a guy wearing filthy clothing. Maybe wrinkled clothes that look like he, he probably picked them off, off the floor that morning. Maybe they, they smell of smoke. Whatever, whatever picture comes into our heads. And James says, you know, sort of just to make things in interesting, imagine you're on ushering duty this morning. Where are you going to sit, these two individuals? Let's say there's two pews open. One is right next to where you and your family sit for worship, and the other is off in the distance. It's off in the, maybe the socially distant section of the church where, where you don't have to think about that person. Who do you want to sit next to? Who do you want to sing next to? Who do you want to worship with? Now, you and I might be thinking, well, at our church, at this church, we don't really have this issue. Right? These individuals don't usually show up at our church on Sunday mornings. To which James, I think, would say, well, we probably have even more to think about then. Because what if we've already sent the message to, to groups of people that, that distressed people or hurting people, or people who fall into particular categories aren't welcome here. And so they, they don't even make the effort to come to our door on Sunday morning. Here's what I think James is, is driving at in verses 1 through 4. James wants us to understand what worship is about. And that worship doesn't just fit into the box of what we sing on Sunday. Worship isn't just about what we pray on Sunday. It's not even what about the, so much about what the, the preacher preaches on Sunday. James is saying real worship, worship that God accepts as pure and faultless is this. It's about who we welcome and how we welcome them. And that is our offering to God the kind of community we are as we worship. And I think he's saying we could have the best Bible preacher in the pulpit. We could have the best musicians up front leading music. But if we neglect a stranger that comes to our door, James says if we discriminate against them in some way, then our worship is defiled. Our worship has been polluted. Polluted not by the grime on someone's clothing. It's not polluted by the checkered past that someone might bring through our doors. James says, verse 4, it's polluted by the evil thoughts that live within us. James knows our hearts and he knows that there are thoughts within us that entice us to make ourselves judges. Judges who discriminate against God's people, 
people God himself loves, people God himself has chosen. And so in verses 5 through 7, James wants to help us evaluate the way we respond in this situation over and against the way our God and Father responds. Look at these three verses. Listen. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? What has God chosen? That's what James is asking here. And does God choose in the same way we choose? Does God favor in the same way we favor? Does God see and evaluate faces in the same way we evaluate faces? And specifically, what happens if God has chosen those we have chosen not to welcome? Verse 5. God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world. What the world sees as poor and low and and without, God sees and evaluates as rich. Particularly, James says, rich in faith, rich in trust, rich in relationship with the God who made them. James goes even further and he says God has chosen them to be the executors of his kingdom because they know him and they love him. Verse 5. God sees things we do not. Chooses things we do not. I can remember a few years ago, a few of us from JCC were invited to bring a meal to share at the A New Place house down in um, North Street in Burlington. And if you don't know uh, uh, what A New Place is, they are a ministry devoted to to helping those who are in the crisis of homelessness move out of that time of crisis and and into stability and into flourishing and into wholeness in every dimension of of life. And so we, we were asked to bring some food and they said, feel free to stick around and share a meal with those at the table. And even if you like, maybe share a short uh, devotion or encouragement. And as I recall, I think Katie put together a few verses that that had been encouraging her to share after dinner. And to my own shame, I confess, going there, that was the first time we had visited, I had my own doubts about the kind of reception we would get. We were total strangers. We were coming in and, and crowding around their dinner table, We were entering their space, the guests who live there. But the only word I could use to describe what we experienced that evening was hospitality, welcome. Nearly that entire table, there were probably a dozen or so, 
house guests there. They shared their table with us, shared conversation with us. They stayed and lingered after the meal to listen to the, the short devotion that Katie had prepared. And then they began to share with us. They shared their own stories of experiencing God's presence in their lives. They shared rich encouragements from the scriptures that, that they were meditating on, that they were coming back to themselves. A few of them even shared the struggles that they were currently working through. And, and the fellowship, the connection around that table was, was remarkable. It was rich. It was beautiful. I remember getting in our car that evening and, and thinking that felt like pure worship. It was good. It was authentic. It was something God had chosen to share his love with us through. But it was something we easily could have missed as well. Who have we missed the chance to worship with? Because of favoritism, because of, of the way we evaluate persons. Who have we missed the chance to worship with? Maybe in the text there in verse 5, you could choose to circle that word chosen. Has not God chosen? And put an asterisk there. And sometime this week, come back and, and identify, you know, one of those persons or people or groups that you have trouble welcoming. Trouble feeling comfortable around. Maybe that you haven't had much experience to worship with or alongside. And here's the question I'd invite you to ask. How does God see that individual? Prayerfully ask that question. How might God be especially concerned for that person or group of people? How might God even have fondness for that person or group of people? And just begin to, to hear what he chooses, what he thinks, what he sees, what he evaluates. In verse 6, James says, not only do we so often see and evaluate in a way different than God, right? We dishonor what God loves. We presume over those God stands with. We withhold our favor from those God cares for. God, God says, James says through, God says through James, in doing so, not only do we miss the heart of God, but we have also chosen to break the law of God as well. Look at verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read through this. It's probably a little longer than you can copy quickly, um, so you might want to come back to it later. Verses 8 through 11. James says, If you really keep the royal law, or the kingdom law, found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is, is making a legal argument here. And I think it's, it's designed to help us see where we stand, on what footing we stand. He says, in the same way that we cannot be selective about who we choose to welcome and who we get to exclude, James says, we also don't get to choose which parts of God's law we will keep and which parts of God's law we'll toss out. James says, it's not up to us. We don't get to decide. To break God's law in one place, in this case, by, by choosing to show favoritism, by failing to love our neighbor as ourself. James says to break the law in that one place is to break all of it. It makes us guilty of all of it. Do we accept that verdict? Do we acknowledge that we are law breakers? Are we willing to allow James's testimony here to convict us. And, it, and if we are convicted, if we do recognize that we struggle to do this well, we struggle to live justly, we struggle to choose what God chooses, we struggle to love those God loves, then what do we do about it? What, what hope do we possibly have? If, if we've broken the whole law, then, then what way out is there? And James says there's only one hope that a lawbreaker has. For someone who pleads guilty before the law, the only thing they can do is to ask for mercy. And that's exactly what he challenges us to do. Let me finish here with verses 12 and 13. James says, right, as those who are lawbreakers, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is asking us, what standard do you want God to evaluate you by? Do you want to be held to the entirety of the law, which he's already shown we have broken? Or do we want to be evaluated by the law of Christ, the law of mercy, the law that gives freedom instead? And James says, well, then drill down into to two different dimensions here. Drill down into how you speak and to how you act. That will show what law you intend to be judged by. Do your words about other people. And do your actions toward those people. Do they reflect the attitude of someone who has been shown mercy, shown undeserved hospitality, shown welcome when they should not have been welcomed? Does our, does our life exude that kind of attitude? Do we speak and act as those who have been forgiven much? 
Or do we speak and do we act as those who are merciless? Do we hold everyone else to a standard that we ourselves cannot keep? James says, choose mercy. Revel in mercy. Know that mercy triumphs over judgment. A few weeks ago, uh, in a time of prayer, I know Sarah Cordemont shared a quote from Tim Keller that we've, I think, heard here a few times on a few occasions. And Tim Keller sometimes likes to summarize the gospel in this way. He says, the gospel says we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. We are law breakers. We are people who show favoritism. We're people who fail to have the wisdom of God. Right? We're more sinful, more flawed than we ever dared believe. But, Keller says, the same gospel says we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. There's more mercy extended to us than we dare believe. Finally, let me invite you to practice one other thing this week. Maybe circle that word mercy in verses 12 and 13. When was the last time you asked God for mercy? Name the places. This is where I need you to show me mercy because I have not lived up to your standard. I have failed. I have broken the law of love. And not only ask for mercy, but then take the time to receive it, to soak in it, right? to, to receive and, and let the, the mercy of God wash over you like a, like a warm bath. Where do we feel insecure? Where are we uncomfortable? Where are we judgmental? Where do we feel ashamed? It's in those places that God desires to minister his mercy to let it wash over us today. And I think there's no better place to ask for mercy and receive it than at the table of the Lord. 